What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body, ruled by sin, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its wicked desires. Do not offer any part of yourselves to sin, as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness." I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tim. Hey, everybody. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23, it's one of those ones that's worth committing to memory because it's amazing. It's amazing because it answers questions like this. Have you ever thought, what does it take? How do you get into God's good books? How do you get into God's books? Uh, good books? Another way that this has famously been asked is, you know, if you were to stand before the gates of heaven one day and God said, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? How do you get into God's good books? Now you might think, that's pretty straightforward, but I've got to tell you, 
if you were to survey tons and tons of people, you would hear lots of different answers because the world has tons of different answers about how to get into God's good books. All the way down here with uh, people who believe there is a God and maybe practice one of the world's uh, God-believing religions, they might say, well, at the end of the day, you want to get in God's good books, be good. Live a good life, and when God does your assessments, uh, he's going to say, yeah, I'm pleased with that, well done, like, uh, like an assessment task, and you've done great, come into my heaven, you're in my good books. The trouble is, whilst I am not the one to judge these folks, this is God's job, God has spoken in the scriptures, look at this, for the wages of sin is death. Wages are something you earn, so if your, your approach is, if you want to get in God's good books, be good, that's an approach that says, if you want to be declared good, earn goodness, earn a wage. And God says, you know what, if you work on the wage system, it never goes well. It results in death. Uh, that is God's frown, not God's good books. It doesn't go well. There are other expressions. In the realm of Christianity, there is still a broad spectrum and nuancing of responses to this. Uh, I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, the response to a question like this would be uh, something along the lines of, you want to be in God's good books, well, great news, Jesus died for you. And the great news of Jesus dying is because of his death, God's grace has been given to you. And along with Jesus' death are some wonderful people from historical times and up to the present moment who are living wonderful lives. They've been declared saints. And there is some merit attached to them. It's like the bank account is overflowing. And uh, by attaching yourself to one of those saints, they have gained some merit for you as well. Now, on top of that, make sure you live a good life as well, that God might be pleased with what you do. Uh, At the time of your death, make sure people are praying for you. And through the refining fires of a place called purgatory, you will find yourself in the good space, hopefully. This is what's called synergism. This is the idea, sin is not sin like bad stuff, but sin as in work, it's a together word. And uh, the word, the gizm at the back comes from ergo, that is work, that is two working together. And it's normally a great concept, you know, if we were to clear this room of, of chairs, sort of thing like we did before Kids Fun Day, and thank you for those who did it last time, there's a synergism as we work together. But as you start to explore the Bible further, I believe, and some people called the reformers in the 16th century said, you know what, we need to reform that belief. We need to clear it up. There's some mistakes in it. Because God's good books come to you as a gift. And so we move further over here into what's maybe called a reformed response. This is where our church starts to find itself. How do you get into God's good books? He puts you there. By his grace, it's a gift. This is what the Bible calls righteousness. That is a right standing before God. His good books, his smile, put it however you like. It's a gift from God and it's only ever a gift. And you receive it by faith. But even here I want to say there's space for nuance and caution. Because it's easy for even our faith for us to start to treat faith like an intellectual work, like something I've still done. And whilst I know I boast in the Lord, I still boast that I was smart enough to trust in him. Did you know that our God is so gracious, our God is so amazing, that he's what's called a covenant God. He's a God who can actually deal with groups and he can save folks even beyond them having personal faith. Yes, I did say that. Now, let's be clear. The right response of all of us 
The way of salvation is to receive God's gift by faith. But God is so wonderful that he can even save people who are not capable of practising such faith. And that gives me hope. That delights my soul to know in a week like this, as Anne spoken to us earlier about uh, the petition for the abortion uh, bill, to think that those humans who either by just simple sad medical accidents or maybe by the will, whether that will comes with an ongoing uh, satisfaction or regret for whatever reason, those humans who die before they're able to take their first breath, they are not lost to the Lord. Their parents are in Christ. That gives me great hope. And I want to say, if that's part of your story, did you know if you're in Christ, you should expect a larger family reunion than you might be ready for when you come into glory. Because we have a God who is able to deal and rescue people, even if they don't have a personal faith, but they are part of a family that does, you know, this is why we baptise infants here on our platform who aren't able to make expressions of faith yet. But we have a covenant God and they go with their family. This is why we can take the light and hope that those whose lives are cut short, who don't come to an age where they can come to this space of this faith, sometimes work that we must do, that we can have hope for them too. This is why we can have hope for those who might be uh, born and live through life with such severe intellectual disabilities that the concepts that I've shared with you already tonight are far beyond anything they could ever do. There is hope for them as well, and they can be counted as brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they're not capable of practicing a faith, if they're part of a, a faith family. This is why I delighted a few years ago, or a number of years ago now, when I heard one of my doctrine lecturers share about his own family. And he said his Christian mother was developing dementia. And she said to him, What am I going to do? I'm forgetting so much. What if I forget the gospel? What if I forget my faith? What if I forget Jesus? And this lecturer, this lecturer held his mum and he said, You know what? Even though you might forget Jesus, he won't get dementia and he won't forget you. Because part of the beauty of knowing God, in fact bigger than the beauty of knowing God, is being known by God. God is at work. You see, this whole idea of getting into God's good books, whilst it started off as a simple thing, I said, hey, how do you get into God's good books? You say, trust in Jesus. It's an enormous concept to move from, uh, from death to life, as it were. Because getting into God's good books is my simple way of explaining salvation, justification, these enormous things that come about in the Bible. Consider all of these huge concepts that the Bible says. Look at this up on the screen. These are some of the ways that uh, the Bible describes getting into God's good books. You were dead in sin and transgression. The question is, not just how am I going to get into the good books over there, how am I going to go from death Now, when I'm asleep, I tend to be fairly inactive. When I'm dead, even more so. What am I going to do to get myself from dead to alive? What am I going to do if I belong to a dominion of darkness? 
which is the natural human state, to get myself transferred citizenship out of that dominion and into the dominion of the kingdom of the Son of God's love. This is a big deal that we're talking about. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. That's a Jewish religious sect. And he spoke with Jesus back in the day. And Jesus said to him, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus asked a good question, how can you get born again? These things are a significant challenge. This movement from here to here is not that simple. Put your hand up if you chose the time of your birth. Yeah, no, me either. In the same way, you, you didn't choose the time of your birth. Nicodemus, how can you choose to get born again? How does that thing happen? You're already born. But wait, there's more. Check out these. You used to be slaves to sin, but you've been set free, and now you're slaves to righteousness. Now, when you think about slavery, think about ownership. You are owned by one. That is, someone had the title deeds on you, like your car registration, and now all of a sudden you belong to another. How did you get set free from over there? You were in Adam. Touch your belly button. You're not touching your belly button. Touch your belly button. See, I can see. I can see all of you. You're not touching your belly button. Touch your belly button. Uh, Thank you. I thought you were going to cross at me. Um, Touch your belly button. And that's how you know that you come from other humans. There are generations before you. The natural state of humanity is to be an Adam, but we need to be regenerate. We need to be part of a new generation, the new Adam who is Christ. How are you going to do that? Get a second belly button? You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but the realm of the spirit. How have we swapped these realms? All of this, friends, all of this, bit of a workout I know, is to demonstrate that it's a significant journey getting saved. It's a significant journey getting into God's good books. It's an easy journey, it's a free journey, but it's a significant journey. And so for a long time... Theologians who like to make things more difficult before they, if they ever make them easier, thought, okay, how do we do this journey from here to there? What are the steps? What are the steps? Or what is the order of salvation? You know, like if you're going on a trip, you think, well, I need a passport, I need a plane ticket, I need travel insurance, I need, and, and you plan ahead, I need accommodation. Well, what are the steps? If this important, significant thing is going to happen, how do we do it? I mean, how do you go from being enemy of God to child of God? How do you go from alien and stranger to God to disciple? How do you go from, as Ephesians talks about, being following the prince of the air to following the Christ, the king of God? What's the order to get this right? You'd want to know, right? Because you'd want to get there. Well, maybe last week, uh, as you heard Langdon speak, you thought, well, there's some stuff. Remember Langdon was talking about how the Holy Spirit leads us in announcing the gospel. And you went, you know what? Happens on the other side too. Not only does the Spirit lead the announcing of the gospel, the Spirit leads in hearing the gospel. And you would be right. The theologians like to call this the illumination of the Spirit. He turns the lights on that we can see the word. He opens our ears that we can hear and receive the word. He makes us alive in Christ. And you'd be right to say, yes, the Spirit. And then others of you would nervously say, 
Where does election and predestination fit into this part of the whole discussion? You know, that idea that God chooses us. And some of you would have gone, nah, like I once did. I remember when I chose God. It started with me and you'd feel uncomfortable about it. I want you to know that the, the choosing of God is a wonderful thing. Just like my, uh, my friend could say to his mum, God knows you and won't forget you. That's because God chose you. It's wonderful. Who would like their God to be of higher capacity than their bus driver? Just raise your hand. I would like my God to be of higher capacity than my bus driver. And I love that my bus driver, before I even get on the bus, before he left the depot, there was a route and a destination planned. And at each stop he gave me an opportunity to come with. Well, I'm glad I've got a God who is of higher capacity than my bus driver and also has a destination in mind and has a people in mind. My God's better than my bus driver. My God's more, even more loving than some friends of mine who, gee, over 10 years ago, travelled to Taiwan. They went to an orphanage. And in that orphanage, they looked through an album of babies who didn't have names. Thousands of orphans. From that album, they chose a child, they gave him a name, and adopted him to be their son. They did it again a few years later. I love that they had that power to set their loving affection on someone and choose. My God, who is a God of election, who is a God of predestination, is a God whose love and power to choose is even bigger than my friends. So you've got to put that in as well. So you go, okay, Shane, a little worn out now. What is the answer? What did they come up with? Well, they tried to look for a verse that might explain it, and this is what we're going to call an exegetical answer. Where's the bit of the Bible that tells us? And one of the best things they came up with was Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30. All right, here might be the order of salvation. Somewhere back in time, God foreknows people. It's not about fortune-telling, it's about him setting his affection on someone. He knows you before you knew him, and he'll know you even if you forget him uh, through dementia or something like that. God foreknew them, and so he predestined them. And you jump down, those he predestined, he called, he announced the gospel to them, they heard the gospel, doesn't actually say that, but he called them, and he also justified them, so they must have received the gospel at this point. And those he justified, those he put in his good books... He'll put in his good house. He'll glorify them. And they went, well, that's pretty good. And then someone went, yeah, not good enough. Because what about discipleship? What about how as we walk with Jesus, the Spirit's working in us and conforming us to the likeness of Christ and all that sort of stuff? What about the journey of transformation that must happen and all the other steps? This answer is not holding the weight of the significant journey from there to there. Here's one of the reasons I wanted us to do this series called United. This is what's called a doctrinal series. If you've been sitting here for the last 10 minutes waiting for me to unpack each verse of Romans 6, I'm going to disappoint you a little. That's not where we're going. You may have heard a zany kind of character, Shane the Chef, last week share that when you bake a cake, you start with ingredients. You take those ingredients through a method and then you end up with cake. Tonight we're talking about cake. For the next few weeks we're talking about cake. We're talking about since the Bible has said all of these things, what will we believe? 
You see, sometimes you just can't find an exegetical answer. You can't find one verse that sums it all up. You think, what should I believe? You're going to have to consider the whole sweep of Scripture. And that's what a guy from the 16th century, a guy called John Calvin, did. And what he said is, okay, if we're thinking about getting from here to there, let me answer this as what's called a doctrinal answer. Let me give you a cake that holds the whole thing. Here's one of the things that Calvin said. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. He's saying, you know, it's not just about following the steps. He actually said it's about getting united with Christ. And so let me say this really clearly because my wife chastised me and said, what was the point of that whole first ten minutes of your talk this morning? So let me say The point is, it's a significant journey from here to there. When we try to understand this as you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this, we make an error. All of those things are in it, but all of those things are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And so what John Calvin was saying is, we can take all of these things from Scripture and find them in the one Jesus And if we can be united with him and not be outside of him, then all that he has done and all that he is, is united with us. This was the delicious cake he was offering as the solution of how we get from there to there. Have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1.30 as it comes up. I love this bit where it just says, It is because of him, that is God, that you are in Christ Jesus. And here's the bit I want you to hear, who has become for us. That's a bit I should have underlined. Who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption, and all the other stuff too. Jesus has become for us your one-stop shop. So we don't need to break this thing into the different steps of first, you need this, then you need this, then you need this. What John Calvin was saying is that meeting Jesus means being united with the fullness of salvation. It's not about an order. It's not about these mechanical steps. It's not about the economics. It's about God's Holy Spirit, who Calvin described as the bond or the glue, who unites us with Christ. And if I have union with Christ, if I'm united with him, see, if I come much closer to you, if I come next to Logan here, who I love to call Logie Bear, if I come next to him, then something has changed. Uh, His possessions still become mine, so it's a still still are his, so it's a rubbish illustration. But by union with Christ, the benefits of Christ become mine. And life with Christ becomes mine. And here's one of the important things we've got to understand. Because as we read through all the things that St. Paul wrote in the Bible, you're going to see this kind of language. In Christ, with Christ, sometimes by Christ, sometimes through Christ. We're going to deal with these two tonight. When we hear Paul talking about in Christ, has anyone ever read a Bible passage by Paul that says in Christ? Yeah, good, you read one tonight, Romans 6, and some others already. He's talking about agency. That is, he's talking about the things that we get from Christ. We might say this is the heavenly vending machine side of Jesus. 
don't worry, I'll fix this blasphemy in a minute. But this is the thing that Jesus has done for me. These are the things I receive from him. And these are wonderful things that you cannot receive anywhere else. But here's the limitation and why we have to embrace union with Christ, that is the in Christ and the with Christ. Because it takes more than agency for Paul to be excited and joyous to say, I was beaten with rods and fought wild beasts in Ephesus. He's talking about participation with Christ. With Christ language that contributes to this doctrinal cake of union says that there's a life with him. You know, and so if I was to do a three-legged race with, with Logan right now, we're not going to win because one of his legs is rubbish at the moment. But I'm going to take it on because I'm united with him. The good news is Jesus' legs work well. Jesus is working well. And so when you're united with him, you receive from him, but you do life with him as well. And if I had, if the theologian in me, he's little, but he's there, wanted us to do this series that we might come to understand this thing called doctrine a little more. The pastor in me wanted us to do this series because I believe it's important for our thinking about Jesus. A beloved mentor of mine recently graduated to glory. And I watched as he died him finish his race extremely well. But I always remember, early in my race, when I first got converted, he told me about a time he almost fell away. And he said, I remember I went to this place where I got converted. It was near the ocean. And he stood there. He was mad with God. And he stood there and he wanted to have it out with God. And he said, I hate you. You know what? I don't believe in you. You're not real. And he vented his spleen for like half an hour and then realized he was an idiot. He said, after half an hour, I realised I've just spent half an hour yelling at someone that I don't believe they exist. Here's my concern. For many years, I've heard the reflections of particularly uh, young adult communities reflecting on those who have lost their faith and saying things like, well, they used to believe it. They used to be full on for it, but now they're not. And I thought that language might be restricted to that particular stage of life, but it's not. I spoke with some seniors just the other day who told me about a grandson they're praying for. We really hope he'll follow Jesus. His dad's really against it, though. Here's my point. When we use language like it, being a Christian, believing it, it's like we've signed up to a philosophy that works. We're thinking simply about agency. When we understand union with Christ well, we're not satisfied with just agency. Yet, look, hook up with Jesus. Hook up with Jesus is like the insurance policy for the last day. He'll get you through those steps. He'll get you in God's good books. Yeah, yeah, okay, that philosophy sounds great, but I want to say go further. Be united with Christ by the Holy Spirit. Participate with him, know him, and be known by him, and walk with him so that even in those trickiest times, you won't have language of believing it. You'll be having language of I know you and am known by you. And my prayer is that at that difficult time which I hope doesn't come to you, you'll be like my friend who will realise you're an idiot after half an hour of screaming at someone, I don't believe in you. Does that make sense? The pastor in me wanted us to talk about union with Christ, that we would never be satisfied with just being uh, receiving his services, but instead we would desire, like Paul says, I want to know you and know you more. I want to live my life with you, Jesus.
want to know you and be known by you. And you know, for years I thought when people used to say stuff like, oh, I've in doubt the answer is Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm not a grow-up, I'm a convert. Some of you are grow-ups. Grow-ups are people who grew up in church never known anything different. I'm a convert. I had life before church, so sometimes I still slip into that world and go, oh, church is just so lame. And I used to think this. I'd hear people go, if in doubt the answer is Christ, I'm like, spare me. I suspect it was just that I didn't understand how big their Jesus was, because now I say the same thing. You know, if you've got questions, what's God like? We're going to look. Look to Jesus. That's where this mysterious iceberg under the water has shown its tip. This is where you can know. Look to Jesus. If you're still wrestling with this, am I predestined thing? Ask yourself, what am I saying about Jesus? There's your indication. If you wonder, does God love me? Please look to Jesus, the one who died whilst we were still sinners, and that's how God demonstrates his love. The circumstances of today are not a demonstration of God's love. When I'm in the back blocks of Obadiah and I don't know what the Bible's talking about, look for Jesus. What's this scripture saying about Jesus? Before I look immediately and say, what's this saying about me? When I'm driving my car or learning to drive a car, I know he never got past a donkey, but look to Jesus. He will make you a better driver, I promise. Participate with him behind the wheel. When I'm thinking about a single life, look to Jesus. He did it well. In marriage or outside of marriage, let me phrase that right, when you're thinking about lovemaking, look to Jesus. Jesus, the one who when we celebrate communion, we say, his body was given for you. The act of lovemaking is never about getting some. It's about giving some. Hence, we only ever make love within the context of a marriage, within the context of service. See how much a bachelor from 2,000 years ago can teach you about lovemaking. It's Jesus. Is God real? There are some amazing philosophical arguments, but look to the historical Jesus and decide, is he Lord, liar or lunatic? Do I belong? It doesn't matter what we say about you. Look to Jesus. Am I worth anything? Jesus says yes. How does authority and submission work? Look at Jesus. So union means we go beyond this vending machine idea and we participate with Christ and are bonded to him and in the weeks to come we're going to see wonderful things about how to live with Jesus. Tonight I want to finish by talking about what it looks like to be united with his work. What is his work? Well, he did a lot of things, but the pointy end of his work is his death and resurrection. We are united with his death and resurrection. And Romans 6, 5 to 7 is very much what I would call the state of the union. Because we're united with him in his death, we've died to our old master. The concept of slavery, as difficult as it is to process, means that somebody owns you. And your owner was sin. Sometimes we talk about sin like it's just something I do. And so I'm the master. But here in Romans 6, we get this idea that sin's not just something you do. Sin is something personified that owns you. 
You're not the master. Sin's the master. And this slavery concept encourages us to understand that sin has power to compel you. Sin as your master has power to put you to death. Sin as your master is responsible for your wages, and your wages are death. But good news, by union with Christ, you died to sin. It is no longer your master. He no longer owns you. Instead, you are now owned by Christ. And so tonight, as I finish, I want to say that one of the beautiful things of union with Christ is it means we're dead to the master sin and alive to Christ, and I want to warn you about spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. What? Stockholm Syndrome. That idea of when you are taken captive by someone after a time in your desperate state, you start to bond with them. I think that sometimes happens with us in sin. We had an old master who held us captive, And sometimes we still think we're compelled to do his bidding. And worst of all, sometimes we think he's still powerful to condemn us. The scriptures tell me that we have died to him. We live with Christ. We have a new master. We have righteousness compelling us, not sin compelling us. And the thing that's on my heart, sin can no longer condemn you. Spiritual Stockholm Syndrome is when the Christian sins and thinks, oh, now I've blown it. But Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Union with Christ changes everything. No longer compelled, no longer condemned. So my prayer over these next few weeks is that we would grow in Christ, not just in a heavenly vendor, but that we would come to know more deeply and walk with the divine Saviour who calls us to know him and to live each day with him. Can't wait for what happens next. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is not a distant God or a last day insurance policy. Instead, he is God come near. He is God who dwells with. He is God who we are united with. And so, Father, we thank you for his agency. We thank you for the wonderful things that we receive from him. We thank you for the life that we can participate in with him. Father, we pray that all of us and all people who have capacity might be people of faith to follow him. Father, we thank you of your amazing love. And we ask now that as we explore union with Christ in this series, we might learn all that it is to live a life with him each and every day and into eternity. For we pray in his name. Amen.